Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series and an accompanying exhibition at the Howarth Art Gallery, I am exploring movement, migration and making through cloth, using pieces found in the Gawthorpe Textile Collection to tell the stories behind what we wear. Focusing on four fabrics, silk, linen, wool and cotton, I'm investigating the global strands of local stories that link Lancashire, at the heart of the textile industry in Britain, to areas throughout Europe, Asia, Africa and the Americas. It's become a running joke that if you compliment a woman on her dress, her response will be, thanks, and it's got pockets. Now, pockets may be a rarity in some fast fashion dresses today, but in the past, detachable pockets were a common aspect of women's clothing. And there's a fantastic example in the Gawthorpe textile collection from the second half of the 18th century. This pair of pockets is made of linen and decorated with cruel work embroidery. So even though they wouldn't have been seen because they were worn tied around the waist and underneath the overskirt, they are incredibly beautiful to look at. I love these detachable pockets as they've come to symbolize some of the previously hidden histories of women's lives that clothing can reveal. Linen was often worn close to the body for reasons of hygiene and practicality. It could protect harder to clean fabrics like wool or silk from the sweat or dirt of the body. This is something we see stretching back into history and has helped to shed light on life and death in ancient Egypt. I'm Dr Anna Garnett. I am the curator of the Petrie Museum of Egyptian and Sudanese Archaeology. I'm passionate about Egypt and Sudan. Um, I'm an archaeologist and I've worked in both Egypt and Sudan for 12 years now. Um, I am an advocate for Egypt and Sudan in museum collections in particular. Um, and um, passionate about the fact that collections are for everybody um, and ed anybody is welcome to learn more um, if they'd like to. Um, and uh, on a separate note, I also am um, a great believer in um, British textiles and br the British textile industry. And um, I am a proud product of many generations of uh, sheep farming and textile production in various ways. I asked Anna about the earliest evidence we have for linen production in Egypt. So the earliest evidence we have for linen production in Egypt is around 7,000 years ago. So this was during the Neolithic period in Egypt. We know that um, linen was made from flax in Egypt and uh, that it was harvested at different times of the year, depending on the use. The qualities of linen um, that was produced in ancient Egypt um, could be grouped into four different categories and really loosely translated. This went from the, the very finest linen, um, which is known as royal linen, um, which was used for, for example, priests' clothes in the temple. It was used to clothe the royal family, to produce um, kind of coverings for st statues of the gods in the temples, um, both in life and in the afterlife. So it also went towards producing um, linen for the, the royal burial 
um, of the pharaoh. The next category was something that they described as fine thin cloth. Then the next category down was known as thin cloth. And the most common category that we have was known as smooth or ordinary cloth. So this was more commonly used for things like um, home furnishings, um, could have been used for things like fishing nets, uh, fishing lines as well. We have evidence for that at the Petrie Museum in the collection. Also things like bags, um, even toys, things like rag dolls were made out of linen as well. Um, and again, we have examples of those in the Petrie Museum. So there was quite a spread of um, of kind of quality of, of linen textile that was being produced in Egypt over thousands of years. So linen was incredibly important in ancient Egypt. The vast majority of surviving textiles from ancient Egypt are made from linen. They're mainly from a funerary context, so from tombs. And that's because in a tomb, um, it's much drier. And so the conditions are much better for um, organic materials like textiles to survive. It played a really important role in, um, for example, in clothing, um, in uh, soft furnishings for housing, uh, things like animal equipment, for example, and farming equipment. Really interestingly, it was used to clothe people, which we know quite well about, but it was also used to clothe people uh, in the afterlife as well as in life. And um, so I think it's, it's really important to note that linen was um, kind of key to the ancient Egyptian um, way of life, um, but also the way of death. And um, we know that they recycle textiles from life to use in the mummification process. So um, bandages, textiles that were used um, to um, mummify people were made from kind of cast off textiles that may have, they, they may have kind of used um, uh, how can I say, used until they couldn't use them anymore in life um, and needed to recycle them. So we can also learn a lot about um, ancient Egyptian lives from looking at um, mummified people. And on that note, there's a really wonderful quote from about 3,500 years ago as part of a funeral lament for a woman in ancient Egypt. And it says, she who was rich in fine linen, who loved clothes, lies in the cast off garment of yesterday. So this is a really wonderful quote to really sum up the fact that linen and textiles in general were very important during life in ancient Egypt, but also equally important during death. Oh my God, I love it. That's so interesting. Am I right in thinking that linen was also used for packing chest cavities as well as for wrapping, like with Tutankhamun? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, textile was used in um, to pack out a person during mummification. So when the the body um, desiccates, when when all the liquid is is lost during mummification, um, you shrink, and so linen was used um, and other materials to pack out the body to make you look more human I guess in the afterlife um, so and absolutely textiles were a really important aspect of um, particularly the tomb of Tutankhamun the his burial um, from his um, bandages his mummification bandages right through to the incredible clothes um, that he was buried with really give us a sense of how he might have lived um, as a pharaoh in ancient Egypt. Who was Flinders Petrie? Flinders Petrie was um, 
and is still considered by some to be the father of Egyptian archaeology. Uh, this is quite, um, I guess, it's a, it's a difficult, he has a difficult legacy, a complex legacy. He was a British archaeologist who helped to transform archaeology from what was a treasure hunt in the kind of mid to late 19th century into a science. And he worked in Egypt and in the Near East um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And importantly for the Petrie Museum and for UCL, Flinders Petrie was the first professor of Egyptian archaeology and philology at the university. He took up the chair in 1892 and through that post as professor, he began to teach and train the next generations who then trained the next generations. And so it goes. So it continues in um, archaeological methods, um, which was his real passion. This included students from other countries that were coming to study at UCL, so including uh, Japan and China. Uh, also important to note that he did not do uh, any of this alone. In Egypt, um, he recruited hundreds of Egyptian men, women and children to work on his sites. Um, although often these individuals are invisible in the archaeological archive, um, although colleagues, including Professor Stephen Quirk at the University College London, have been working very, very hard to tell the stories of um, the Egyptian workforces of Flinders Petrie. He also didn't uh, teach alone at UCL either. Um, he had a lot of support from um, uh, teaching assistants, um, including a, a, an amazing woman called Margaret Murray, um, who was his teaching assistant and really pioneered the development of, of teaching of um, Egyptology. But back to Flinders Petrie. So he sold his collection of ancient Egyptian objects to UCL in 1913. This is thousands of objects that he had acquired through, partly through purchase in Egypt. So um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was still perfectly possible to buy objects on the open market in Egypt um, by antiquities. Thankfully, this is absolutely not the case now. This is very much illegal. Um, so you can find objects from Flinders Petrie's excavations everywhere you go in every pretty much every museum that has an Egyptian collection will have objects from Flinders Petrie's excavations. Now, of course, this um, some may say, see this as a, as a really great thing. So people all over the world can learn about ancient Egypt through objects from Flinders Petrie's excavations. But of course, this is also um, this is also a really contentious point, you know, should these objects have been removed from Egypt in the first place? Um, yes, it was considered legal, but um, should it have been considered an ethical um, thing to do to remove these objects from Egypt? So that's one, um, I guess, one point of the kind of complex legacy. And the other is Petrie himself. So as many as, as well as many positive qualities that, that I've mentioned and outlined here and a real passion um, for the, um, the development of Egyptian archaeology and, and the teaching of the subject. He was also an active voice in the development of eugenics and racial science at UCL. 
which is again a, a really um, kind of problematic area of Petrie's legacy. And at the Petrie Museum, we're working hard to untangle these these different threads of Petrie's life and career to tell a more kind of honest and transparent story of his life and work. We're not shying away from these um, more kind of problematic aspects of his life, but equally we're we're, we're trying as uh, as much as we can to to tell a balanced story and 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 be honest um, when it comes to Petrie's uh, legacy. Could you tell me about the Tarkan dress? Yeah, absolutely. So the Tarkan dress is the oldest known, most complete garment in the world. And it's around 5,000 years old. It's one of the first objects that you see as a visitor when you come into the museum space. It's incredibly unusual to have textiles this old in the archeological record. And it's important to bear in mind that Egypt has a very special climate for the preservation of organic material, so including textiles. It's very, very dry. And particularly where um, textiles may have been part of um, a kind of burial context as part of um, uh, placed in the tomb as the Tarkan dress was, this provides a really good kind of dry condition for uh, textiles like this to survive. So the Tarkan dress was excavated in 1913 from an ancient Egyptian cemetery, one of the most important early cemetery sites in Egypt called Tarkan, and this is about 50 kilometres south of Cairo. It was excavated by the archaeologist William Matthew Flinders Petrie and his Egyptian workforce. And what's really interesting is that it was excavated in a kind of muddy clump, like a muddy lump of textiles, really kind of dirty bundle of textiles. And that's it, it's really interesting because um, Flinders Petrie himself, he knew um, he was one of the um, uh, first archeologists um, to work in Egypt. Um, he recognized that um, such a thing was important to keep. Um, whereas some of his contemporaries may not have, have kept um, a muddy, bundle of textiles. So this object was kept, this collection of objects was kept and it came to the UK um, as part of what's called the partage system. So right up until the 1980s, objects could be removed from Egypt um, and shared with the Egyptian Antiquities Service and then removed. So um, given to, um, donated to museums, for example, or given to um, the private funders who funded your excavation. And that's how the Tarkan dress came to be uh, at, at UCL, at University College London and the Petrie Museum. What's the story of the Tarkan dress after it entered the UCL collections? The story of the Tarkan dress after it entered the UCL collections is quite a story. Um, it's it's almost something that you wouldn't quite believe unless you knew that it it, it actually happened. Um, so it's interesting to note that other archaeologists working in Egypt and in, uh, elsewhere in the world didn't always see the value of keeping the textiles that they that they found. 
Um, thankfully, that is not the case now. Textiles are considered a very important aspect of archaeological um, excavation. There's a wonderful quote from Flinders Petrie about why he kept things like this, um, even though that, you know, it's a, it's a muddy bundle of old textiles. Um, he said that I always keep things I don't understand in order to study them at leisure. And sooner or later, I find out what they are. And on the, for the most part, he did. Um, he, he found out what an awful lot of objects were that he didn't know what they, they were when they were excavated. But for this muddy bundle, he didn't. And it lay untouched for 65 years after Flinders Petrie left UCL. And in 1977, um, the then assistant curator of the Petrie Museum, um, who was Rosalind Janssen, our colleague Rosalind Janssen, she's a textile expert and she recognised the importance of the Tarkan textiles, luckily for us and for the museum and the collection. And she worked closely with the V&A's conservation workshop to unearth the textiles from this muddy bundle she worked with a conservator from the the V&A cons uh, conservation workshop called Sheila Landy and there's a fantastic quote from from her about what it felt like to work with uh, this muddy bundle and and excavate these textiles in 1977 so as she removed the caked mud Sheila revealed the creases in the sleeves at the elbow and under the arms created by the owner who originally wore it. And suddenly she felt that ancient life speak once more from nearly 5,000 years ago, reverberating through a simple linen dress that was lost and found again. I love that quote, it's, it, it's wonderful. It must have been such an experience. And ever since um, the, the Tarkan dress has been mounted um, in a really beautiful way so you really get the sense of the shape and the detail particularly of the pleating it's so thrilling to be able to work with um, such a iconic object um, particularly such an important object for the history of um, kind of textiles and textile manufacture as well could you describe the tarkan dress uh, yeah, I can try, but to describe it um, will do it an injustice, I think, because you have to see it to believe it. Um, so I absolutely recommend that you um, that you listen to my description alongside looking at a photograph of, of the object. It's absolutely stunning. So it's a V-neck linen um, shirt, a kind of um, waist length garment. It's actually not a dress. Um, it could have been a dress, but the lower hem is is missing. It's not preserved, so it could have been much longer. We call it a dress, but it's actually more like a shirt. It has long sleeves um, and it's made from three pieces of quite sturdy hand-woven linen. And along the sleeves and the kind of bodice on the top section, there are really beautiful very sharp kind of knife pleats uh, decoration. And this is very unique to have this type of decoration. You know, this is 5,000 years ago um, for a garment. Um, it also has the linen itself has a very beautiful kind of natural gray stripe, very pale gray stripe, um, which it seems was quite deliberate. And uh, we get many people coming to the museum and 
and on uh, social media as well and saying, oh, that looks like something I've seen, you know, on the high street last week. It looks, even though it's 5,000 years old, it looks so incredibly modern. Um, and I know quite a few visitors that would like to wear something similar and it would be very um, convenient in the hot weather of the summer to wear something like the Tarkan dress. Now, a lot of, in my understanding, a lot of the funerary goods we find um, can often be pieces that weren't actually worn in life. They may be created for the, with this very specific purpose, but there are signs of wear on the Tarkan dress. Is that right? Could you tell me about how we, you know, how we have evidence for the fact that this was a worn garment? What's really interesting is that it had clearly been worn in life because in the in the burial, it had been found inside out. So someone had taken it off after having worn it. And that was, um, it, uh, the sleeves are quite tight, relatively uh, speaking, of ancient Egyptian garments. And so to take off a garment over the head would have actually been better than kind of pulling on the sleeves. And what's really interesting is that there's really distinct kind of creasing at the elbows and under the arms. So it shows that, that someone wore it. it. It really gives us this opportunity to, um, to learn more about the, the people of ancient Egypt um, from the objects. It has a really human quality and um, that's, you, you can't fail but to be kind of moved when you think about that, that someone 5,000 years ago wore this, um, this garment, uh, whether a, a child or a teenager, um, and then, you know, took it off and, and left it in the tomb. So, like I said, the, the, the lines between kind of funerary linens and um, linens, textiles from everyday life are quite blurred, really. Um, so while we have more evidence for surviving textiles from, from tombs, from funerary contexts, we can learn an awful lot about life from those, from those objects as well. How do we know how old the Tarkan dress is? We know how old the Tarkan dress is because of scientific uh, analysis. There were some people that said um, it was a certain date and some that said it could have been about a thousand years later. So there was some real disagreement there. But in 2015, the results from a radiocarbon dating analysis were released by a team from the University of Oxford. And this scientific analysis confirmed that it's, uh, the Tarkan dress is indeed the world's oldest known, most complete garment. The result was that it was made between 3,482 and 3,102 BC. And that is a result with around 95% accuracy. This is a really remarkable discovery. What's the legacy of British archaeology in Egypt? In terms of the legacy in Egypt today, um, there are, um, there are, yeah, I guess different threads. Um, so we work closely with um, Egyptian colleagues in Egypt. We have a very good working relationship with um, curatorial colleagues and um, community groups, um, both in Egypt and the Egyptian um, people in the UK, um, as do other museums and, and other, um, I guess, learned societies. So the um, Egypt Exploration Society, for example, um, also based in London, we work very closely with um, 
uh, Egyptian colleagues and Egyptian communities to be able to tell um, a kind of holistic balanced story of our collections to be able to present them in a more transparent way. Um, but of course, this is um, the, the term decolonizing, um, I find can actually be quite a dirty word because you can't decolonize a collection, you can't man magically um, I can't remove the fact that it was it's it's always going to be set against this colonial legacy but what we can do is bring in different voices to tell those stories of the collection and so um we're not shying away from the fact that um this happened flinders petrie the very nature of his his excavations the fact that he was able to remove so many objects from egypt um, is is a stark reminder of, um, I guess, the the imbalance and, and of um, power and relationships um, in Egypt and um, with other kind of colonial powers at that time. Um, but it's something that we are we're trying very hard to kind of actively share those stories in the Petrie Museum. But we know that we can always do better. Um, so we're taking the first steps now um building on the foundation set by curatorial colleagues over the last decade at the petrie museum so telling those stories of um petrie's egyptian workforces what it was like to be working um, on an archaeological excavation in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as an egyptian person um i can't tell that story i don't know what that's like that's that's not my legacy to tell that's that's you know an egyptian legacy to tell and so it's, it's just really important that we that we um give a platform to to those voices and that's something that we're we're still really keen to develop at the petrie museum as with the case of the tarkan dress understanding linen can help us unlock the past and can help us untangle debates of the present and the proximity of linen to the body throughout history has given it some remarkable uses, including our pair of pockets from the Gawthorpe collection. In the wake of the Industrial Revolution, different centres of linen production grew. Fiona McKelvey can shed light on all of these areas. Well, hello, uh, I'm Fiona McKelvey, and most of my working life has been in textiles. And my particular passion is for Irish linen. It's where I come from originally, and um, it's always been something that's been a huge interest for me. And uh, since 2013, I've been running my own business, selling antique and vintage Irish linens primarily on my website. It's lovely to get to do what you love every day. Historically, linen was often used for items that were worn very close to the body, as well as for homewares as well. What properties does linen as a fabric have that make it suitable for undergarments? Linen's a very versatile fabric, and we often think of it being used for homewares, tablecloths, etc., or bed linen. But it's also a wonderful fabric to use for undergarments. Historically, it was used for linings. Uh, for garments when dry cleaning hadn't yet been invented. Um, if you think of the word lingerie, the L-I-N at the beginning of that word is the French word for linen. So obviously it, it played quite a role going way back. And the cloth was perfectly suited for various reasons, one of which it's highly absorbent. It wicks moisture away from the body and at the same time it keeps you cool. And perhaps most importantly, it's naturally antimicrobial. 
So it's the perfect choice. It's also been used historically in the medical field for bandages and for dressings and even for suture thread. Uh, Florence Nightingale's nurses wore linen aprons. First PPE, really, if you think of it that way, but perfect for our PJs today. I asked Fiona about the complicated process of creating linen. How do we get from flax plant to fabric? The system of making um, linen from flax is really quite an intricate and labour-intensive manufacturing process. It's partly agricultural and partly industrial, and it involves anything from between 10 to 12, sometimes more, processes. It starts with the flax growing in the field, which takes about 100 days to come to be ready to harvest. And at that point, the flax to be pulled, it's not cut because there's actually about three or four inches of usable fibre in the root below the soil. So back in the olden days, that was really backbreaking work. But um, it's done by machinery now, of course. Then the flax is dried. The seeds are removed by a system called rippling. I love the vocabulary around flax and linen. So far, we've got pulling, then we've got rippling. Um, then we have retting. So the dried flax is immersed in water or sometimes it's laid out in the field for the dew and the rain to uh, begin to eat away at the fibre because there are pectins inside the stalk which hold the fibre inside the woody stem and that needs to be dissolved to enable the fibre to be removed. Once the fabric has been dried and retted and dried again, then it goes to be scutched, which is to remove the woody outer stalks. And that involves beating it either with um, heavy wooden mallets, as it would have been done in ancient times, but now it's done by a, a scutching turbine. And that removes most of the wood. And you're left with um, rather a coarse looking fibre. looks a bit like a ponytail. But then it moves away from the agricultural processes and is moved to the factory where it is hackled. Now that basically is combing the fibre and if you think of the expression flaxen haired you can just imagine a beautiful ponytail of blonde locks and that is what hackled flax will look like. All of the short fibres have been removed, it's all of the final woody little bits have gone and you're left with a beautiful fibre which can then be spread and roved and spun. Now, at that point, it can either remain as thread or it can go to the weaving factory. And at that point, it's woven. It then has to go through several different finishing processes. And then you have your piece of cloth ready to make. Lovely. I completely agree. I love the terminology, the language around it. It's so oh, it's lovely, isn't it? It's so it's, poetic. It really it's very isn't. evocative. Even... Like, yeah. And then leaving it out, you know, in the dew in a meadow for the dew, like it's just, yeah, it's beautiful. It's very poetic. What's the earliest evidence we have for linen in Ireland? Um, as far as I know, linen was being used in Ireland as far back as ancient times. But the first written record we have um, really goes back to the 11th century when we know at that time it was being um, sown, harvested and manufactured. But of course, in a very rural, rural way. What impact did English colonialism and specifically the Wool Act of 1699 have on linen in Ireland? Well, 
I'm not a historian, but I'm not sure that English colonialism is necessarily an issue here. In the late 1690s, around 1697-98, the um, English government were already looking at ways to um, help the Irish linen industry by removing taxes, which in fact enabled Irish linen to be much more competitive compared to other European countries, flax being imported into England. And as I understand it, the Wool Act of 1699 was part of a, a wider economic strategy of protectionism on the part of the established English textile industry. So it wasn't particularly intended to disadvantage Ireland. It did also affect the US colonies. They were also forbidden to export their wool. Um, so from my perspective, I just love the fact that somebody had the foresight at that point, albeit to stop us um, exporting wool, but to support another industry in its place. And we can just see what happened as a, as a result. When and why did Belfast become known as Lininopolis? Um, the growth of population in Belfast in the 19th century was really quite remarkable. So much so that um, the city gained a nickname. It was, we all, we've probably all heard of Cottonopolis. Well, Belfast was given the nickname Lininopolis. So if we look at um, the growth of population, it gives you an idea of how this city grew so quickly. In 1808, it was a smallish town with about 25,000 inhabitants. 100 years later, the population's almost around 400,000. And that's primarily because of people moving from the countryside to seek opportunity and employment in the linen mills that were springing up all over the place. But it wasn't just uh, the linen mills, but it was all the attendant industries. Um, there were foundries being set up to make the machinery that was required. You had people producing boxes into which you put the linen, people producing the labels. So it was actually quite a widespread um, group of activities, not purely linen spinning and, and weaving. But um, in the Victorian era, Belfast was the fastest growing urban area in the kingdom. So much so that in 1888, Queen Victoria made Belfast a city. And it was to that city that my own family moved. They had been in the countryside in County Tyrone, uh, working in a small town called Castle Caulfield, where there was a linen mill. But once their apprenticeships were finished, they were discharged from that mill. So they'd heard wonderful tales of what was going on in Belfast. So off they set in the early part of the 1890s, I believe it was about 1894. Um, and I had a, a great uncle, Thomas, who was a linen lapper, and his job would have been to fold and measure the cloth and prepare it for leaving the mill. Then there was Matilda or Tilly, who was a linen yarn winder, and she would have overseen the transfer of the yarn from huge wheels, a bit like a bicycle wheel, onto the smaller bobbins, which then would have gone for weaving. But one of the lovely statistics that um, I always think of when I think of Linenopolis, in the year 1892, the mills in Belfast were spinning 12 million miles of yarn a week. Wow. It's quite some figure. <laughs> Yeah, it is, isn't it? How important is the linen industry to Belfast now? Belfast's linen story nowadays is probably, rather sadly, one of heritage. However, there is a huge resurgence of interest in linen generally in Northern Ireland. And 
it will never get be back to the heyday of Linenopolis, but there is still a niche industry which is very much on the international stage, particularly if you think of um, one of the oldest mills in Northern Ireland is William Clark and Sons, who were founded in 1736, and they're in County Londonderry, still in business today. And back in at the back end of 2018, Sarah Burton and her creative team from Alexander McQueen came to visit the factory and featured their product, which is beetled linen, in the spring 2020 collection. And Ferguson's of Banbridge, and um, they are the last damask weavers left nowadays, and they are working together with their sister company, John England, to produce some very innovative fabrics which are being used in film and television. They produce quite a lot for Game of Thrones, for example. We're still um, very much appreciated internationally as as having a skill set to produce fabric that is is special. What is it about Irish linen that makes it such a globally renowned product? The Irish linen brand was global uh, way before the days of TV advertising or 24-hour media, but I'm lucky enough to have some archive documents which show trademark registrations for the Barber Linen Company as early as 1909. They felt it necessary to trademark their product in places like Uruguay and Syria. Um, and I think it wasn't just the quality of the linen, um, which was at the absolutely the highest level, but it was the commercial skill of the selling activity, which brought the brand to so many countries and helped build the reputation it still has today. What benefits does linen have in the 21st century? Is it more eco-friendly? Linens, as I mentioned, as uh, enjoying quite a revival at the moment, and it's primarily because of its sustainable and eco-friendly credentials. It really is. This is flax as well as the cloth that comes from it. Unlike cotton, flax doesn't need any additional irrigation when it's being grown. It uses much less water in the production process and there's minimal uses of pesticides and all parts of the flax plant are used. Even the little woody bits that fall away are used for animal feed or for insulation. Um, and every year, the growing of flax in Europe, which is still substantial, Europe still supplies 80% of the world's flax. It results in the capture of 250,000 tonnes of CO2. Um, and it's not just cloth that comes from flax. 10% of the world's flax is now being used for composites. So it's replacing plastics and things like carbon fibre. Um, Invest Northern Ireland, who are the business support agency in Belfast, have recently funded a scoping study to assess the potential for flax composite production locally. So Irish linen might yet take on a new guise. But going back to um, why this is, makes it so sustainable, um, five times less energy to process one kilo of a flax composite uh, than fiberglass and 20 times less than carbon fiber. And it's being used for things like skis, uh, surfboards, Porsche using it for the panels inside their car doors. Um, it's lightweight. And if it's produced using biodegradable resins, then the product itself is biodegradable. We've travelled from our 18th century pair of pockets all the way to the Porsche. It's Linen's sustainable credentials and its links to rural life that we'll be returning to next time on the Cloth Cultures podcast, 
when I'll be exploring the British Textile Biennial's homegrown homespun project, which is creating an entire pair of jeans in Lancashire, all the way from field to fabric. You can find out more about the British Textile Biennial's commissions and programme of events on Twitter, at Textile Biennial, and on Facebook and Instagram, at British Textile Biennial. See you next time. <laughs>